Okay, um, so today we are watching the last video. Um, so I thought I'd give a as quick as possible overview of everything we've done so far so that the last video would kind of make sense. Um, so the whole point of everything we've done is so that if someone has to come to you and start asking you questions or attacking um, the Bible, that you have a defense to give. And so we started at the very bottom, bottom and uh, we said, okay, whenever a person has a historical text, you need to come to it with a neutral attitude. You don't immediately presume that it's 100% true, nor do you come with um, a lot of suspicion and just presume that it's automatically a lie. You come with a neutral attitude, you come with open-mindedness, and you allow that document to earn your trust. And we say that the three ways that a document can earn your trust is multiple attestations, so a lot of um, other sources verify it, or you have a lot of the same source constantly repeating the same thing. Um, the principle of embarrassment, when you mention details that are contradictory to your cause but for that purpose seem to be truthful. Um, and then we had the principle of coherence, which is, um, does what you're saying make sense in light of what we already know? Um, then we went on from that to did Jesus live? So even if we had to take the Bible out of the equation, do we have enough historical references to him to attest to the fact that he was actually a human being that walked on the earth. And we discussed some of the external sources. We mainly focused on Josephus <clears throat> and how he essentially in his, <laughs> now it's your turn with the cat's tail. <laughs> um, essentially in his record, he recaps the gospel message uh, just from the little bit that he wrote. Um, then we discussed how we got the New Testament in terms of the documents we have today. How do we know that they're the same as the originals that were written? How do we know that there weren't mistakes written along the way and copied over and over? Um, and so we then spoke about um, the three things that we look for when trying to figure out if a historical document is an accurate copy or representation of the original, which was um, <clears throat> we look for multiple copies of the same document. We look at the age of the document, the older it is, and the closer to the time of where we think the original writing is, the more likely it is to be accurate. Um, and then we use good methodology um, to investigate a text. And the methodology that we use um, with the New Testament, as well as what a lot of other scholars use for other historical documents is called textual criticism, which is basically how do we determine what an original said from the copies, okay? Um, we also discussed how if we reject the New Testament, we would have to reject all historical uh, documents because of not only the amount of manuscripts we have, which totals around 20,000 manuscripts, um, not counting um, 1 million quotations from early church fathers, 
but also the fact that in terms of gaps between when a document was written versus um, the actual event, we have an extremely small gap, the max being 60 years. So the oldest document that we have written, um, not the original, so the autograph, the oldest autograph we have was written only 60 years after Jesus's death. And most of them were written way closer within a, a 30 to 40 year time span. Um, and most other biographies are written hundreds of years after the fact. So that along with a lot of other things we discussed, which I won't recap, led us to believe that if we disregard the New Testament, we'd have to throw out all history. And since no historian is willing to do that, we would have to take um, all New Testament documents, at least the ones that are verifiable, as factual, as recounting true historic events. Um, <clears throat> then we discussed um, if it was the intention of the authors to write history. And why that was important is because we need to know genre. If the person wants to write fiction um, or uh, propaganda, then we would read a text with a very different mindset. Um, then we went into how we know what their intention was and that their intention was to write history because um, two of the gospel writers state that that's their intention. Um, John and Luke specifically say what their intention is with writing their documents. Matthew and Mark are extremely similar in their uh, writing to Luke. And so because they're almost identical in what they portray, you can assume then that those are also representing history. Uh, the principle of embarrassment comes into play here. Anytime someone is writing a document that purports to be history, and then they include embarrassing details, it's more likely to be historical fact, just like when writing about Alexander the Great, um, one of his generals mentioned how there were arguments between other generals or how he lost battles. And if you were trying to just portray someone as a perfect general who never made any mistakes and won every single battle, you wouldn't include those details. But because they did, we can believe the accounts of Alexander the Great to be true. The same comes with Jesus. When we speak about him being betrayed by Jesus, Judas um, by his disciples constantly like changing their mind oh you're the son of God and then they doubt him and all of that Peter denying him three times um, the disciples making mistakes even after Jesus ascended to heaven like Peter um, being called out by Paul because of his hypocrisy all those things if you're trying to portray Christianity as the true religion and Jesus as God you wouldn't include those details if you had a hidden agenda because you don't want to, uh, you know, make anything about what you're portraying look false or, or uh, add any doubt to it. So embarrassment adds to the validity of a text. Um, we also spoke about how <clears throat> we know they wrote history, or at least we know it was their intention to write history, because it was important to them to get what they were saying right, because to them, they believed Jesus was God, and it was important to accurately record God's words. And so it was important for them to get that right. Um, the Jews in general believed that the words of God were important and should be written down. And so it would be natural for them to not just want to just say the first thing that comes into their head, 
but really write down accurate history. Um, uh, we also spoke about how they had no reason to lie because the gospel that they were spreading could land them up being killed. And no one, unless you're literally a lunatic, would continue to spout lies if you knew it could get you killed. At the moment of, you know, death, like when someone's about to kill you, if they say, hey, this is your chance to denounce this, if you were really were saying lies, most sane people would say, oh, never mind, I'm sorry, that's not the truth. But all of these people um, continued to spread the gospel knowing the consequences would most likely be imprisonment, torture, and death, which adds to the validity of their message. Um, and uh, this kind of goes in the last category, not really this one, but I forgot to mention it. Uh, we know that they were able to write accurate history um, even though there was that 60, 40, 30 to 60 year gap because of the oral culture of the Jewish people and Middle Eastern people in that area. We spoke about how that's hard for us to relate to that these days, but how it's very common to this day in Middle Eastern cultures um, to spread something orally and to have a, let me see if I remember what it was, informal controlled, I believe was the term, where anyone can tell the story, but you have some people who know the story really well and they control the narrative to make sure you don't go off and, and speak a lie. And so the story of Jesus, even though it was only officially written down 30 to 40 years later, um, at least in the gospel accounts, Paul's letters were written very close to Jesus' death. Um, but we, can trust that they're accurate because it wasn't like people just stopped speaking about Jesus for those 40 years and then, oh, by the way, 40 years ago, there was this guy. It wasn't like that. They had been talking about Jesus that entire time, continuing to tell the story over and over, not only the apostles, but every person who heard him speak in a public place, which we know was thousands of people. And so we had people checking other people. And then we had the apostles on top who would make sure that the overall narrative remained clear and true. And then later those same apostles then wrote down the actual story. Um, so we know their intention was to write accurate history, but then someone might question and say, okay, but did they? Because you can have the intention to do something and fail at it. So how we know that they wrote accurate history was because one, they met the three historical criteria that we spoke about right at the beginning which is principle of embarrassment, multiple attestations, and principle of coherence. Everything they've written meets those three principles. There's also archeological evidence to support many of the claims and stories in the Bible, in the New Testament specifically. Um, we know from other Christian testimony, so the epistles count as an, as an internal yet external witness because they verify everything that was said in the gospels. And then we have external non-Christian testimony, for example, like Josephus, who would come in and repeat things that are stated in the gospel as historical fact, even though he didn't believe the gospel message to be true. So because of these factors, we believe they not only intended to write accurate history, but they did actually write actual history. We then spoke about contradictions. Um, many people say, okay, well, you have even if you've preserved this document accurately 
and the intention of the gospel writers was to write history and maybe there's some factual things here and there but at the end of the day your bible is so filled with so many contradictions how can you even trust it so how we would respond to that is one the reason we have so many contradictions is because we have so many manuscripts if you only have three or four documents telling you about the life of alexander you can only have x amount of variations because you only have four documents because we have 20,000 manuscripts as well as over 1 million quotations naturally the amount of variations would increase and that's an important word that we discussed there's a difference between errors and contradictions and variations if i said um i went to the store today and then later on i said today i went to the store that's a variation it's not an error and it's not a contradiction and so when we have 400,000 variations that doesn't mean it's a mistake or an error it means anytime something is phrased differently we also spoke about how most of those quote-unquote errors are spelling er errors or grammar errors and if you take those out you've eliminated most of the contradictions and then we spoke about the few passages that do actually differ or are missing in one um, grouping of manuscripts to another and we spoke about how these are very few and how they don't actually impact the gospel message stuff like uh, the angel stirring the water at the pool of bethesda whether that is a true account or not it's got nothing to do with the message of jesus and even if we had to eliminate it out the bible it wouldn't change our theology at all um then we spoke about how we got the new testament books so not how did we accurately keep a record but we have all these different gospels how did we quote unquote pick which one should be in our new testament and we spoke about how we actually didn't pick or choose we identified um it's not like we had a bunch and we're like oh, i like that one i like that one i like that one there were actual gospel accounts that were the inspired written word of god and we identified those as christians in the early church to be the word of god and we did that um, by looking at four different criteria apostolicity so was it written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle um, the age of the document uh, or, or rather the age of when it was written so anything outside the first century was immediately disregarded because you needed to be within the time of Jesus or under one of his apostles to count. Um, orthodoxy. So did the, the gospel or the document um, fit into the teachings that the church was already teaching at that time? Um, the church was well established at that point. Uh, within the first hundred years, the apostles were still alive for most of that time. And so they were able to make sure that whatever was being taught in churches was the same thing that Jesus taught. And so if suddenly you had this document come in that told you to do this outrageous thing, even if it had the title of mm, Gospel of uh, James, for example, and um, it was written in AD 99, you would reject it if it told you to like worship the moon at sundown because no, no church had ever heard of anyone doing that ever. Um, then the fourth one was ecclesiastical usage. So is that gospel or epistle 
already being used in multiple churches across the known world at that point. So if 90 out of 100 congregations was reading out of the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, it had extra validity. And we spoke about how they didn't just pick one of these four criteria. You had to meet all or most of these criteria to be considered. Um, and we also spoke about how um, the New Testament believers had an expectation that a new covenant with new documents would come. And so they were already looking to identify these documents as they were being written. We spoke about how even the apostles themselves, as they were writing these letters and gospels, were identifying each other's writings as scripture while they were still alive. And lastly, um, we spoke about how uh, at least 20 to 22 of the 27 books were already solidified as canon before 280 which is only a hundred year period after the last um, epistle was written, which we believe was uh, like revelation by John in like the nineties. So within that first hundred years already, 85, I think it is percent of the New Testament was already solidified. And the few books that were left, it's not like no one knew about them. And then the next 200 years are like, oh, these five books are cool. Let's include them. They already were known, but there was just some debate about them. Like some were like, oh, I don't know, maybe let's be careful. And then, so they were included. They were talked about in churches, but they weren't officially set in stone and recognized until the next few hundred years. But they weren't introduced in those next few hundred years. They were just solidified. And we spoke about how the like Gospel of Mary and Thomas, why they were rejected, things like they didn't meet the criteria of age. They were written like for the first time 200 years after Jesus died. Um, they made outrageous claims that weren't verified in any other of the epistles or, or gospels. Um, they weren't written by the people who they claimed to be written by. There was no one who admitted, oh yeah, that one was written by Thomas. Um, it was just people writing a name on it and hoping their text would get validity. Um, and also, and this goes back to, I should have mentioned this earlier, why we believe that eyewitnesses actually wrote the gospels was because the names don't make sense. Like if you had to pick people to write the gospels, why would you pick a tax collector? Why would you pick um, uh, somebody who's not even apostle. So like Luke, some random physician who follow, followed Paul around. Um, and Mark, who's Mark? Like, oh, Peter's disciple. Why wouldn't you just say Peter? Like the early church already said, we know that Mark wrote down Peter's account. So why don't they call it the gospel of Peter? Because they were being true to the author. They knew Peter didn't write it. So they still called it the gospel of Mark. Um, so that was a very brief overview. Obviously, we went into a lot more detail, but that's how we've gotten so far. So now that we've established all of this, why does this matter? If you have sat down with a skeptic and gotten to this point where you've gone through all these things, which let's be honest, I don't think you can really get through in an hour. Like if you're really trying to convince them this is something that you would sit down for coffee with them over, over many weeks and slowly go through each of these claims that they probably have an issue with. 
right? But once you've gotten through this, once you've gotten to the point where if they're being honest with themselves as a scholar, they can't deny that the New Testament is a historically accurate document. What does that then mean? What implications does that have for not only them, but for all of humanity? And that's what today's video is essentially about. And it'll be the last video that we watch. Okay. <clears throat> I think not really bad Cassandra's summary for like 10 weeks and I kept it under 10 hours. So <laughs> Troy's nodding his head. He's like, yeah, I thought this was going to be like a four hour session today. <laughs> okay. I, I think he wasn't God. I think he was just a man with a lot of good ideas. Uh, I am Muslim, so we believe uh, that the Jesus is not son of God. Um, Jesus even said that he wasn't God, but people, Christians are quick to say that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, and what would Jesus do, and all these things. I personally cannot um, personally accept the fact that he's a son of God, but I do believe that he was a person, he said some things, and they were very cool. If we're going to reject the deity of Jesus claims to be deity in the earliest Gospels, we can't really establish anything historically about anyone. But Jesus is unique in that he's the only religious founder who literally claimed to be God. It's in every layer of the gospel position, from A to Z, um, Mark, Q, M, L, John, it's in all of those. And it's in multiple literary forms. So this is the very finest kind of multiple attestation that we can have. Once you admit the data uh, of the New Testament as historical data, not necessarily as infallible, once you admit that there was a character named Jesus and he got crucified for claiming to be God, once you admit that, there's only three ways out. You either bow down and worship him, or you throw stones at him, or put him in a, in a mental asylum. If Jesus is not God, then he is an idiot. He is the most insane person who ever lived, and nobody believes that. Or else he's a deliberate liar and a Satanist who wants to steal your soul, and almost nobody believes that. So the old trilemma, Lord, liar, or lunatic, is a very reasonable argument. Let's jump into our next topic, the trilemma argument from Christ's character, the trilemma argument from Christ's character, sometimes known as the Lord, liar, or lunatic argument. This is a very famous argument. It, it has roots back in the church fathers. It became very popular in the 19th century and even more popular in the 20th century from the writings of C.S. Lewis. Now, the argument itself is an attempt to rule out any kind of fence-sitting or middle-of-the-road position when it comes to Jesus. People want to say, yeah, you know, I don't think Jesus was God. He was just a good guy. He was this cool guy. He taught a lot of nice things. He was a good moral teacher, whatever. But he wasn't God. They don't want to commit all the way. And they don't want to go all the way the other direction either. They don't want to say he's this horrible person. They want to take a middle-of-the-road approach and just say he was a good guy, not God, and, and, and then kind of leave it at that. Now, that is exactly what this argument is trying to rule out. There is no way you can take a middle-of-the-road approach when it comes to Jesus. He was a very polarizing figure, and you either got to love him as God or you got to hate him, but you can't just say he's just this cool guy. That's what this argument is trying to do.
Now, one of the beauties of this argument is its simplicity. It's, it's, it's beautifully simple. It's so simple, even a young child can understand it. And it simply just runs like this. Who was Jesus? Well, he was either a god or a bad man. So this is the trilemma argument from the divine claims of Jesus. Now, our first premise here is that Jesus claimed to be God. Now, either that claim is true or that claim is false. If the claim is true, then Jesus is, in fact, God. We can call him Lord. If the claim is false, well, then we're faced with another question. If false, then either Jesus knew it to be false or he did not. Pretty straightforward. Either he knew it to be false or he did not. If he knew it was false and yet, you know, said it anyway, Jesus is a liar. If, on the other hand, he did not know it was false, then Jesus is a lunatic. So you have three options here, either Lord, liar, or lunatic, all hinging upon whether or not Jesus, in fact, claimed to be God. Now, this argument is, in fact, very tight. If it's true that Jesus claimed to be God and he's wrong about that, then he was either lying or he's crazy. And not just in a little way, either. Lying and insanity come in degrees, don't they? The greater the distance between the claim and the reality, the bigger of a liar or the more insane you, in fact, happen to be. So claiming to be God when someone's not is either one of the biggest lies you can tell or he's probably the most pitiable and deluded figure in all of history. It's got to be one of those options. So how can we defend this argument today? Well, in fact, the only thing you need to defend is that first premise, Jesus claimed to be God. If you establish that, then all the rest of that stuff is going to just fall right into place. The claim is either true or it's false. If it's true, then he is God. If it's false, then he's either a liar or a lunatic. So all that needs to be done to establish this argument is to establish that first premise. And, and consequently, if you go telling this argument to someone in, in maybe more educated cultures, that's the premise they're going to deny. That's what most New Testament uh, critics who don't want to accept Jesus' claims, that's what they say. They're going to say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Um, whoever thinks that he did, well, you just have a very naive, ahistorical understanding of, of Scripture. You can't just read those claims um, that the, the gospel writers, when, when they put those words into Jesus' mouth, Jesus didn't really say that. Uh, he never claimed to be God. He was just some, maybe some political figure, uh, a cool new age hippie, uh, whatever the case. But he never made those kinds of crazy divine claims. Those were just added in later. So, they, so these New Testament critics that I'm talking about, that they will say that Jesus had a very low Christology, a very low self-understanding of himself, and all the high Christology stuff came in later. Now, by high Christology, I mean that Jesus had a divine nature. By a low Christology, I mean that Jesus was just a man with a human nature. So that's, that's an important term you'll see a lot when you, when you do some New Testament studies is the difference between a low Christology and a high Christology. It's just they're, just, they're just terms for low Christology being just like an average guy like us, and high Christology meaning an, an elevated uh, self-understanding of being a, a divine figure. Now again, by far and away, most modern critics will attack this argument by simply saying, simply asserting, let's say, that Jesus had a very low self-understanding of himself. He never claimed to be God. For example, the New Testament critic, the agnostic New Testament critic, Gerd Ludemann, says, the broad consensus of modern New Testament scholars that the proclamation of Jesus' exalted nature was in large measure the creation of the earliest Christian communities. So all he's saying here is that Jesus never claimed to be God. Later Christians just made that stuff up. Okay. Now, so what we have to do to establish this argument is, is again, to establish that first premise that Jesus did, in fact, claim to be God. Now, of course, some are going to want to know, how do we know what Jesus thought about himself? And the answer is quite simple. We know it through studying the historical record. We've already spent a lot of time in this course establishing the general reliability of the gospel so we can go in there and look and see what, what did they report? What did they say that Jesus thought about himself? What can we glean from those sources? 
But also, even if we're wrong about that, still, we can use the historiographical criteria by themselves. Criteria like the principle of coherence or the principle of multiple attestation. We can go in there and look and we can use those, those tools that historians use to pick out the relevant historical details when it comes to Jesus' self-understanding. Now, the principle of coherence here is worthy of a, of a special mention. Since, it's, since it is indisputable that Jesus was condemned and suffered death by crucifixion, so whatever coheres with this event, like, say, making divinity claims, right, that is probably historical too. So the principle of coherence, if you'll remember, says that once we have an established historical fact, whatever else would cohere with that or agree with that or would seem to cause that perhaps, that too is probably historical. That's the first principle that's important here. The other one is the principle of multiple attestation, when you have a lot of different people saying the same thing. So we can look and see what did Jesus' followers think about him? What did they see him as? And that probably is going to give us some indication as to what Jesus thought of himself too. So even if our case for the general reliability of the Gospels were to fall flat on its face, and I don't think it does by any stretch, I think it's a strong case, but even if that were true, still, we can use historiographical criteria to go into these works and pick out the relevant material that does seem to indicate that Jesus did, in fact, claim to be a divine being. So I want you to know, this is very important to know, we're not being naive here in our historical research. We're not just merely opening up our Bibles and say, oh, Jesus said it, therefore it must be historical. We're not doing that. We've done our homework. We've, we've made a strong case for the general reliability of the Gospels, and we're also going to be using historiographical criteria to go in and pick out certain pieces and establish those as historical as well. Is there evidence in the tradition, critically sifted through the tradition, that, that Jesus saw himself with div divine credentials? And if you can get to that point where you say, doggone, he really did think of himself as the Son of God, not in some honorific titular way, but really, in a spiritual, metaphysical sense, he's God's son with unique authority and power. Then the trilemma can kick in. The historical case that Jesus regarded himself as a divine being, I think, is quite simple. And I think people make this a whole lot more difficult than it needs to be. Now, before we get into the divine claims of Jesus, I think it's fitting to first talk about his moral character. Given the evidence, what do we know about Jesus's moral character? Now, according to both the secular history and the New Testament, it's clear that Jesus had this kind of power over men's hearts. I mean, we're told that people would leave their jobs and go follow him for days, sometimes even without food. People say things like, no man ever spoke like this man. We know that he helped others, that he was compassionate, that he was poor and refused wealth. He said things like, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. According to the evidence, he doesn't, he doesn't seem selfish. He engages in acts of humility, like washing the disciples' feet. Uh, he was open to being friends with anybody from any class, rich or poor, prostitute, tax collector. It didn't matter. Jesus would, would hang out with these kind of people. So he wasn't like this stuck-up, conceited kind of guy. He preached mercy, asking us to forgive others 70 times 7. He also insisted that we love others. He said things like, love your neighbor as yourself. That was a revolutionary sort of teaching. Moreover, the Sermon on the Mount is widely hailed as one of the finest speeches on moral perfection in the history of the world. There's something about this speech. It just, it's, it's challenging, yes, but it rings true in our hearts, too. So Jesus at least seems to be a model of moral excellence, a paradigm, if you will, of moral virtue, a, a moral model for others to follow. You know, again, there's something about his teaching and his actions that rings true with our, with our hearts and in our conscience. So given that Jesus' moral character seems to be highly respectable, let's look at some reasons now to think that he also claimed to be a divine being. Now, I think there are three good reasons to think, three good reasons to think that Jesus claimed divinity. The first reason is Jesus' own words and actions, okay? Jesus' own words and 
actions indicate that he had a divine self-understanding, all right? Now, I, what I mean by this is his words and actions both implicitly and explicitly indicate this. And also, we're not going to look at just any one particular thing. We're going to take the whole collection. We're going to look at everything that Jesus said and did and, and look at the convergence and see where all the evidence points to, not just one passage here or one passage there. But the point here is that Jesus says and does things. He says and does things that implicitly or explicitly indicate that he had a divine sense of authority. So let's look at some examples. First of all, Jesus explicitly claims to be Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is the name for God in the Old Testament, but Jesus, in fact, claims that for himself, and we see that in John uh, chapter 8, verse 58. And the reaction of the audience also indicates that that's how they understood it, too. Jesus says he has the power to judge and raise the dead. Now, the Jewish belief was that God alone can raise the dead, but Jesus claimed that for himself. He also says he is the judge over all peoples and will separate them at the end of time. He says he was before Abraham. He says all judgments have been given to the Son. He says he is the door through which men enter to have life. He's the true vine, the way, the truth, and the life. He says he pre-existed with the Father. He actually says allegiance to him fulfills all of man's deepest needs. He says we owe a debt to him, and by loving him, that's how we gain forgiveness. He says he's equal with the Father. And it's multiply attested throughout the New Testament that he said he was central to people's salvation and that your standing before God depends upon your standing before him. Also in the parable of the wicked tenants, and this is an important one because even critical scholars admit that the parable of the wicked tenants comes from the historical Jesus. But in this parable, Jesus says he's greater than the prophets. He says he is the special son of God that is sent down with authority, an authority that's higher than all of the prophets. And even the scribes listening knew exactly what he meant. That's why they were trying to seize him right then and there. He also says things like he is greater than the temple. He says that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, now the Jewish understanding was that God established the Sabbath, but Jesus said he's Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, who does this guy think he is? He also claims his kingdom will last forever. He also claims divine titles for himself. For example, he calls himself the Son of Man. Now that phrase right there, the Son of Man, this is a big deal because that is Jesus' favorite title for himself. He uses it over 80 times and the New Testament. And it doesn't mean just like a son of man, like we're all son of men or daughters of men. That's not what he's talking about. By son of man, he's referring to a passage in Daniel, Daniel verses, uh, chapter 7, verses 13 through 14 to be exact, where he's talking about the Danielic son of man, that is a divine being that's going to come down and establish an everlasting kingdom. So this son of man thing is actually a claim to divinity. He also thinks he is the Messiah. Now, the Greek word here for Messiah is Christos. It's where we get the word Christian. And in fact, the word Christ uh, become so frequently associated with Jesus, it's like his last name, you know, Jesus Christ. But this point that Jesus thought himself to be the Messiah or the Christos, it's simply indisputable. It is all over the New Testament. The New Testament is full of examples where Jesus thinks himself to be the Messiah. Now, you may be wondering, okay, well, just because Jesus thought himself to be the Messiah, how does that mean that he thought himself to be God? Well, the answer is, is that in the Old Testament, being God, a divine being, is one of the attributes that the Messiah was thought to be. For example, Isaiah 9.6 says the Messiah will be called the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of His government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over His kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So in a Jewish context, if you claim to be the Messiah, you are claiming to be the guy that's going to come down and be the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace, establish an everlasting kingdom. You are claiming to be a divine being.
Also, we see this in all the, you have heard, but I say to you passages of the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus is doing there is he's referencing the Old Testament Ten Commandments, which in the Jewish context came from God. He's claiming the authority to reinterpret those things. You have heard the Ten Commandments, and they said this, but I say to you, like, who is this guy who can just, who can just walk in here and reinterpret and raise the bar on the Ten Commandments? He also says things like, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And the word that I have spoken will be his judge on the last day. So you have to understand that Jesus is making very, very radical claims here. When you say these kinds of things in a Jewish context, you are claiming an immense amount of authority. You're claiming an authority that is on par with God himself. He also frequently does things like forgiving sins. Now in a Jewish context, only God can forgive sins, and, and his listeners point that out to him. You know, Jesus will forgive somebody's sins, and some onlooker will say, hey, only God can forgive sins. And it's like, Jesus says, yeah, yeah, okay, and your sins are forgiven, and your sins are forgiven. Oh, wait, 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 Jesus, only God can forgive sins. Yeah, okay, yeah, and your, your sins are forgiven, and your sins are forgiven. Clearly now, again, he's implicitly claiming an, an authority that can only be attributed to God, the power to forgive sins. Jesus also prayed to God using the term Abba. Now that term there, Abba, is a very informal word. It just means like daddy, okay? But Jewish people would never pray to God using such informal language. It would be almost disrespectful, okay? But Jesus thought he had the authority to use such language. Also, it is undisputed, even by New Testament critics, that Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God had arrived. This is an undisputed point and a very, a very important one for our purposes because not only did Jesus preach the coming of God's kingdom, but he saw himself as having a very central role in that kingdom. In fact, he thought he was the king and the head of it. So we can make a very strong case, I think, just from his own words and actions, that Jesus had a divine sense of authority and self-understanding. Jesus says, Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And you know, if you, may, you may not know that, but from a Jewish point of view, that's quite a claim. What? You know, the Sabbath is established by God in the Ten Commandments, and here's Jesus that has the audacity to say that he is Lord even of the Sabbath, that he can have authority over the law of God. I mean, you can understand how the Pharisees would say, who's this guy think he is God? This is number one uh, teaching was the kingdom of God, how to get there. Here's the kingdom, how to get there. What's the way to get there? You're looking at it, me. Uh, as son of man, he has authority on earth to forgive sins. That really upsets everybody. What is he saying there? That's quite a claim. Well, the Jewish leaders around saying, forgiving sins, that's blasphemy, only God can do that. Mm -hmm. And he has the authority to forgive sins, he has the authority to make Sabbath pronouncements, he has the authority to pronounce things clean, pure. I mean, who is he? See, and in, in, when you understand more fully his claims better in the Jewish context, you realize Jesus really does have an exalted self-understanding. All right, so the second reason now to think that Jesus claimed to be a divine being was because his earliest followers thought that too. As far back as we can tell, Jesus' earliest followers believed that he was God. So reason number two comes from Jesus' earliest followers. And I emphasize that word, their earliest, as far back as we can tell. I mean, uh, we're not talking about later on down the road, you know, 50, you know, 100 years down the road, 50 years down the road. No, we're talking about the earliest followers, the people that were right there closest to him, as far as we can tell, thought he was God as well. How do we know this? Well, several reasons. The first reason is, from the earliest times, we can find prayers addressed to Jesus. Now, we're talking about a Jewish monotheistic culture here, but from the earliest times, we can find prayers that are addressed to Jesus. For example, there's an Aramaic mini prayer. Now, Aramaic is the language spoken in Palestine at Jesus' time. So whenever you can find something in Aramaic, you know it comes from early on. 
But there's an Aramaic mini prayer, if you will, called the Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. Okay, we see that, for example, in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. It's also in the Didache 10, 6. But this Aramaic mini prayer is a prayer to Jesus, our Lord, come. Also, other prayers to Jesus were common throughout the New Testament. We see that in 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Acts, and so on. There are also doxologies addressed to Jesus. We see this throughout the New Testament. Now, a doxology, that's just a big fancy word for a prayer that's a short expression of praise to God. So like, for example, we could use one today, thanks be to God, or praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. That would be a short little doxology. But there are those kinds of things throughout the New Testament, and they're addressed either to Jesus by himself or to Jesus and the Father together. We see this, for example, in 2 Timothy 4.18, 2 Peter 3.18, Revelations 1, 5 through 6. Earlier New Testament texts have doxologies using the phrase, through Jesus Christ. We see that, for example, in Romans 16 and 2 Corinthians 1.20. We also see hymns sung to Jesus very early on. We see this, for example, in Philippians 2.6, 1 Timothy 3.16, Ephesians 5.19, and Colossians 3. Also in the epistle of James, I've said earlier that there are strong arguments to show that James was one of the earliest documents that we have in the New Testament, the epistle of James, and there Jesus is called the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the object of faith. Jesus is the Lord of glory. We can also look at Peter's sermons in the book of Acts, which are known to be very old. And there we see Jesus is called the author of life, the judge of the living and the dead, and the Lord of all. Also in Paul, there are so many references in Paul, there are too many to list right here, but in Paul we see several references to Jesus as a divine being. For example, Jesus is called the Christ who is God over all. Paul, in reference to Jesus, says, He is the image of the invisible God. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul also says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when Paul writes these things, it's not like he's teaching. He assumes that this is common knowledge amongst his audience. So it's not like he's writing these things as if it's some kind of new revolutionary doctrine. No, he assumes his audience is already familiar with these ideas. Also, again, we see in John, John writes, This is why the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also called God his Father, making himself equal with God. In fact, we can say that this equating of Jesus with God is taught throughout the entire New Testament. Okay? Worship of Jesus was very primitive and early in Christian communities. Now, we have to ask this question, though. Why would Jewish monotheists suddenly start worshiping this man, Jesus? Why would they do that? Well, the Gospels all say that Jesus encouraged them to do so. In other words, the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus as God is simply inexplicable unless it comes from Jesus Christ himself. How else are we supposed to explain a full-blown high Christology in the earliest stages of Christianity unless it comes from Jesus himself? You know, it's really amazing to me that some modern New Testament critics have so much arrogance that they think they know better what Jesus thought about himself than Jesus' own disciples like Peter, Paul, John, etc. So I think we can see now then that not only do Jesus' own words and actions lead us to think that he thought himself to be God, but also the, what we see from Jesus' earliest followers also indicate that they thought he was a divine being. And where in the heck would they get that idea except from Jesus himself? How is it that all of the early witnesses get the idea that Jesus is somehow God? 
You have it in Paul. You have it in their own way in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You certainly have it in John. You have it in Hebrews in some way. In all of these kind of different traditions of early Christianity, you have various ways of associating Jesus with God or assigning to Jesus what belongs properly only to God in the, in the Jewish symbolic context. And there's only one common source that stands behind all of these traditions, and that's Jesus. The earliest Christians, the apostles themselves, regarded Jesus as a divine being. One only has to look at Philippians chapter 2. And here we have an apostle, Paul, saying this in one of the earliest pieces of New Testament literature, saying that Jesus is no less than God himself. Not only do we find high Christology in the earliest New Testament literature, such as the writings of Paul, but we find it throughout the Gospels. So, the earliest Christology that we have is actually, in a way, already the highest Christology. It's the Christology that worships Jesus. It's the Christology that assigns to him the name above all names. It's the Christology that assigns to him, or that associates him with God, in the two distinctively divine works of creation and redemption. What is the best uh, historical explanation for how the earliest Christians, who were pious Jews, monotheistic Jews, came to believe that Jesus is divine? And it seems to me that the very best historical explanation is Jesus claimed to be divine himself, and that's why the earliest Christians believed it. Now the third reason to think that Jesus claimed to be God is that Jesus' divine claims best explains the crucifixion. Jesus' divine claims are what best explains the crucifixion, which uh, is, is one of is the most solid piece of, of uh, historical uh, knowledge that we have about Jesus is that he suffered and died by a crucifixion. What would explain the crucifixion? Why would they take this guy who, you know, in the minds of some scholars, this guy is just non-offensive at all. This guy just wouldn't hurt a flea. He was just this kind of a new age hippie that just said, love everybody. And that's all he ever said, you know. If he never claimed to be God, why would a guy like that get in trouble and find himself strung up on a cross, you know? A Jesus that never made any radical claims would have never been crucified, you see. Take, for example, the passage in Matthew. And the high priest said to him, I adjure thee by the living God that you tell us, if thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith to him, thou hast said it. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power of God and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his garments, saying, he hath blasphemed. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now you have heard the blasphemy. So we know even from pagan sources that Jesus was crucified. Jesus' crucifixion is the most well-established fact we have about him. And therefore, given the principle of coherence, we should accept whatever would explain this fact. What would explain the fact that this guy got himself crucified? A Jesus that was just a nice guy, a cool guy, a peace man, loving hippie, that kind of guy would never tick anybody off and would never get himself crucified for blasphemy. How did this fellow get himself killed? Why was he the object of such relentless opposition if he never claimed anything like what Christians represent him as claiming? If he never claimed to forgive sins, if he never claimed to raise the dead, if he never claimed to work mighty deeds, if he never claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath, how is it that a figure who so banal could, could inspire such relentless opposition as to get himself killed? We really should give a funeral for the theory that Jesus had no exalted self-understanding. If we're going to reject the deity, uh, Jesus claims to be deity in the earliest Gospels, we can't really establish anything historically about anyone. If you focus on it's what seemed to me to be the really important historical question about the rise, the origins of Christianity, how did Jesus come to be killed? What did he himself understand his aims to be? How did the Gospels 
take the shape that they did and how did the Christian movement take the shape that it did? If you focus on questions like this, which are the really important historical questions about the origins of Christianity, it seems to me you find that it's impossible to answer them on the basis of Jesus seminar suppositions that all of this stuff was a later invention. So whether Jesus was God or not, let's be clear, that's what he thought about himself. That's what his earliest disciples thought about him. And that's what his enemies thought he was claiming too. So there really is a mountain of evidence to support the idea that Jesus claimed to be a divine being. So anyone who wants to come along now and just simply assert, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God, they must shoulder the burden of proof. There's no evidence to suggest that. All the evidence indicates that Jesus did in fact claim to be a divine being. It's not enough just to throw out blanket unsupported assertions. That's not an argument. You have to support your claims. We have supported the idea that Jesus claimed to be God, Anyone who wants to come and deny that now must shoulder the burden of proof and show otherwise. Otherwise, there's just no good reason to think that the denial of that claim is true. So we should, we should take it as established then that Jesus claimed to be God. It's very well historically established. But if that's the case, that's our first premise in the trilemma argument. If Jesus claimed to be God, it was either true or it's false. If it's true, then he is God. If it's false, then either he knew it was false or he did not know that. That makes him either a liar or a lunatic. Therefore, the conclusion follows that Jesus is either God, severely insane, or the lowest of tricksters and con artists. As philosopher Stephen Davis writes, there is precious little in the Gospels to suggest that Jesus was either a lunatic or a liar, and much to suggest that he was neither. Virtually everyone who reads the Gospels, whether committed to Christianity or not, comes away with the conviction that Jesus was a wise and good man. As C.S. Lewis so, so beautifully put it, I am trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We can make a very strong case that Jesus definitely saw himself as an eschatological re redeemer and savior of Israel. Yeah, he, he is a good teacher, but the problem is if he's a good teacher, but he's wrong about his two most important claims, deity and the only path to God, that sounds like he's pretty much a, a, you know, a bad teacher. That's not a good teacher. That's a bad teacher. It's not possible really to hold that Jesus was just a good guy because he says lots of things there on his authority and on the authority of God, with whom he links himself in an inseparable way. So is he, is he right then about himself? Is he really God's son? Should we regard him as, as Lord, therefore? Or is he a fruitcake? The lunatic theory seems pretty implausible in the light of um, the kind of things he taught. They make sense, they're, they're coherent, they're, they're, they're moving, they're, they're revolutionary too in many ways. The, the burden of proof certainly is on someone who wants to argue that he was or what he taught is, is crazy. It seems impossible to argue that. So that rules out the lunatic hypothesis. He apparently really does see himself as an exalted figure. Well, was he? Or was he simply deluded? Or was he deceitful? And you're back to the lunatic or liar options. And you have to say, come on, Jesus is not that. He's not deluded. He's not a nutcase. He's not a liar. Deluded liars don't impact the world for good. 
if you take the position he's really a good guy, then he's going to come at you with the question, why do you call me good? None is good but God. And do you take, do you, do you really accept the authority that he claims for himself? If you don't accept it, and I think you have to hold he wasn't a very good guy. Uh, he was a kind of megalomaniac, a very deluded guy, but, but somehow a megalomaniac, a deluded man, who got just about every important thing exactly, completely, marvelously right. Okay, can anyone hear me? Awesome. So that's the conclusion of everything. If you can get someone to get to a point where as a logical human being that cannot deny that the written accounts of the life of Jesus that we have are valid, truthful historical documents. I don't even have to believe it's the inspired word of God. You just have to get them to the point where it's a, a reliable, historical, truthful document. Then they have to face the claims that Jesus made. As he mentioned, Jesus claimed to be God in multiple ways. His disciples believed him to be God. I'm actually surprised he didn't actually go into uh, the times where he asked them, who do you say that I am? They say, you are the son of God. And he doesn't only just like, he doesn't correct them. He doesn't walk away silently. He affirms them and he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for it is not flesh and blood that's revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. He's affirming their claim that he is the son of God. Then you have all the other Christians over time uh, in the New Testament claiming that he is God. He was clearly cru crucified because he equated himself with God. And so that means he did claim to be God. And once you've established that, then that person has to make the decision of one of those three conclusions. He either claimed to be God and it was true, he was God. He claimed to be God and he was completely insane or he was a liar. And um, I would highly recommend a book called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. He goes into this, was Jesus liar, lunatic or Lord? And he goes into a lot of detail going into each. I read this when I was in university, so it was quite a while ago. I can't remember everything exactly, but if I do remember it correctly, I think, um, for example, in the lunatic section, he goes into how psychologists, secular psychologists, have evaluated the things that Jesus said and from their area of expertise have said whether they think this sounded like a crazy person or not. And unanimously, they all come to the conclusion that these are not the words of a person who is insane. Everything he says is very logical, very coherent, follows naturally. Like nothing he said was leads them to believe he had some kind of mental deficiency. So then that only leaves two more options. Then he goes into that Jesus was a liar and how that's you can't prove that in any way. Everything he said was true. He claimed to be a good moral teacher. People, even um, <coughs> even his enemies would come and say, you know, you're good. Your teachings are good. So, <coughs> sorry. The only people 
that claimed he did evil was when he when he claimed to be God and they equated that to blasphemy. But no one believed he was going around lying. <coughs> okay, so when speaking to a skeptic, if you brought them to the point of historical reliability, you then have to get them to the point where they admit that Jesus made claims about his divinity, which can be seen multiple different ways. And once they have established that, they have to come to the conclusion of whether he was a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. There is no in-between. And um, when they come to that conclusion, that's kind of where you leave it. You can't force them to admit that he is Lord, but they have to logically, they have to make him fall in one of those three categories. And that's what they have to decide for themselves. You can give them evidence that he wasn't a lunatic, evidence he wasn't a liar, but that is where the Holy Spirit has to then come in and convict their hearts. Usually if you can get a person to that point, you've pretty much won the victory. And if at that point they're still denying Jesus, it's not because their head isn't convinced, it's because it's a, a heart issue at that point. <clears throat> awesome. So that essentially concludes our um, Christ 101 session. We have one more, but that's not going to be a lesson. That's going to be what we spoke about when uh, there's going to be the two surprises. And then you guys are going to do your, I don't want to call it a debate because it's really not a debate, but your practice interview with the skeptic on each other. Um, <clears throat> but that'll be in January because we're going to take a three week break just because a lot of people are away. Um, and uh, I'm also needing just a little time off. Like next week is our Hanukkah celebration and stuff. So um, I have to cook from like, I don't know, four in the morning. So I can't have a session then. Bunch of people on here during the Christmas week. And then I think I'm just going to give January 2nd off because I don't know if people are going to be tired after New Year's Day or something like that. Um, so we'll be back. I don't know what's the date. January 9th, we'll come back and then we'll have that final session. Um, uh, and then we will continue with a proper normal Bible study, which I'll explain more on the 9th. Stephen, you wanna close in prayer? Yeah, sure. Um, dear God, I wanna thank you for this opportunity to meet, um, even though it was virtually. Um, this opportunity to learn more about you uh, and your presence. Um, I thank you just for the work that Cassandra has put into this small group uh, and leading this uh, series. And I pray that we have uh, good holidays. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.